0: Beautiful. Um, well, thanks, Rick. Thanks for that Bible reading. Uh, we have been, last week, actually, we started a new series. Uh, we're doing a spiritual health check. Now, we are told every so often, particularly as we become a little bit more senior in years, uh, I understand this is the case, uh, that, uh, that you're told to go and get a regular checkup that the doctor is there testing things out, making sure you're fit and healthy and ready to go on into life, or catching things that maybe might sneak up on you if you're not being careful. We think that as important as physical health is, spiritual health is even more important. And so we started a series last week looking at what is the signs what are some of the signs that we are individually but also as a church spiritually healthy Now another way of phrasing that comment that question is what is the work of God's what is the sign of God's work in us How would we know that the Holy Spirit is at work transforming us What is the signs of the work of the Spirit individually, and corporately. Now, you may be visiting with us this morning. Maybe you're, you're someone who's investigating Christianity. Can I say, it's great that you're with us. You may be a Christian who's just come in from elsewhere. It's wonderful, again, that you are with us. Uh, what you're going to get this morning is a, a look at some of the key aspects of uh, what is at the heart of living the Christian life. So, I hope you don't just tune out and think, oh, this is something they're doing. Uh, this is an opportunity to dig into some of the key aspects of what it is to live a Christian life, a healthy, growing Christian life. Last week, I introduced you to this man. Does anyone remember his name? It's Jonathan Edwards. Uh, You should have known that, sure. No, okay. This guy, uh, he was a pastor back in the USA in the 1700s, the 18th century. uh, And he was a pastor of a church at a time of great revival. There were lots and lots of people who were making public commitments to follow Christ. The churches were jam-packed. It was a time of lots of emotion, lots of strange spiritual things were happening. And Jonathan Edwards, as a faithful pastor, he asked the question, how do we know this is from God? What are the true signs, the true marks of a work of God's Holy Spirit? Because he was aware that it's, it's easy to claim something that may or may not be true. So I might come up to you today and I might say, well, Matt told me uh, that uh, he's defected from his commitment to Port Power uh, after their absolutely pathetic performance on uh, Friday night. Uh, that Matt, Matt told me that he wanted to publicly declare that Port Power were really, they were dead to him, okay? And he wanted to encourage any of the, you that had allegiance to Port Power that you would give up on them and walk away, Yes? Okay, I'm telling you, I am serious. Matt told me to tell you that. Okay? Now, where is Matt? (laughs) Did you tell me that, Matt? He's not here. I could tell you anything. How would you know that that is a true sign of the work of Matt in my life? Okay, you'd have to go back to the character of Matt and know that he probably would never say that. Okay? Okay? Uh, but I would like to point out that the difference between the Crows and Port is really nothing at this stage of the series, okay? Both lost, okay? Okay, there is no difference. Uh, And bring on next season. Okay, anyway. But I could claim anything. And people in God's name claim lots of stuff. And just because it looks spiritual doesn't mean it actually is. And so Jonathan Edwards looked at what was happening. Lots of people saying, oh, I want to follow Jesus. Churches is full, uh, high emotion, spiritual things happening. And he called these things marks of neutrality. He said they may be a work of God's spirit, but they may not be. Because the Bible didn't promise any of them. And so he went went back, and he went back to the passage uh, that Rick looked at for us from 1 John 4, uh, and he pulled out what he called the distinguishing marks of a true work of the Holy Spirit. And we saw last week that if the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of individual people, ourselves or our church, Christ will be elevated that Christ will be honoured, that we will be growing in our devotion to him. That was Mark number one. You'll find that sermon on the website. And uh, this morning, we're going to dig into Mark number two. Four points that have nothing to do with those titles, except for the last two titles are correct. The first one, if you're taking notes, is actually called The Battle. Uh, I worked off last week's, notes to build this week's notes. And I didn't edit this properly. Isn't that joyful? Okay. The battle, point one. The victory, point two. Undergoing a spiritual and prescriptions of grace. They are there. So let's dive in. Now, the Lord Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, uh, he met with his disciples. Okay. And he says this in in John chapter 16. He says... In this world, you will have trouble. Now, Jesus is saying more than this world is just a tough place. Jesus is actually saying that if you have been born again, if you are one of his disciples, you have actually been born again into a battle a battle between two kings, two rival kingdoms. On one hand, you have Jesus, God's king over God's kingdom. And on the other hand, you have Satan, who in John 14, verse 30, Jesus refers to as the prince of this world. You've been born into a battle, a conflict, and Satan is the opponent. And the world, Jesus tells us, Is his kingdom now where is this battle fought? It depends what you read. Uh, You might be familiar with a whole series of books, and there's all these angels and demons and all these kind of things out there. The Bible tells us the battle isn't fought out there, day by day, the battle is actually fought in our hearts. It's a battle for our allegiance, a battle for our love. Now I want to just quickly digress at this point and have a little bit of a, uh, a teaching moment with you. So please just stay with you, we will come back to this. I just wanna talk about how our hearts operate and how our lives operate, okay? Now, um, who here thinks that uh, a healthy diet and regular exercise is a good and proper thing that will actually promote your health and your general well-being. Just just put your hand up if you think that's a good thing. Okay, now I want you to leave your hand in the air if you believe that you eat well and uh, exercise regularly consistently with what you believe to be true. <laughs> For the record, there's about four people, five <laughs> people with their hands up. I worked in health... Uh, for a number of years. And as part of what I would do as an ex-physiotherapist, I would teach people how to lift properly and how to look after their back. Uh, Particularly important when you're working in wards and you're lifting patients. Some of you guys are nurses, you'll know what I'm talking about. Did people consistently follow the advice of the professional who had filled their heads with all the right facts? No, of course they didn't. Education generally doesn't change our lives having the right information doesn't actually change the way we live so what does well the bible teaches and I think experience bears out that the way that lives change our lives are directed by what we love so let me give you a quote here from James Smith he's a favorite little author of mine He says, we are what we want. Our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviours flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicentre of the human person. He says, the most important thing about you is not what you know, it's what you love. And we see that don't we? We see that in life. It's actually what we have set our hearts upon that we choose. An Anglican Archbishop, Thomas Cramner, said, what our hearts desire, our wills choose, and our mind justifies. What our hearts desire, our will chooses, and our minds justify." I've given you the illustration before about my love for chocolate, okay? I can justify, my, my heart tells me I love chocolate, okay? I then choose to have chocolate. I will go and find it. Uh, I, I have a particularly sharp nose for chocolate, uh, and I will hunt the house, and I know when they're hiding it from me. Uh, and I go looking for it. Uh, and then when I find it, I eat it, Uh, telling myself how many times I've been to the gym that week that I've actually had a really hard week and I really do deserve this. Uh, I justify to myself my action. But really, my action doesn't come from a I need chocolate in the head. It comes from a want chocolate in the heart. Our hearts, our loves, drive our actions. This is why a lot of health education doesn't work. But some of the best health education that you see out there, it targets this. You might remember uh, on the back of... I haven't seen them for a while. On the back of buses, there used to be uh, anti-smoking ads, but they were pitched in terms of uh, wanting quality time with the kids, wanting to have a fit and active life, to enjoy life rather than the limitations that come from smoking. And so it was pitched in terms of Not what smoking will do to your arteries or anything else. It was pitched in terms of your loves. Of course you'd want to have great time with the grandkids. So why would you do something that would get in the way of that? So give up smoking. So you see how good communication targets the heart. But Jesus here is telling us, and John is telling us, that there are two sources. There are two sources of Uh, promises that are being made, two visions, can I say, of where your heart will find its true desire. And one is God and his kingdom and his king, and the other one is Satan and the world that is there. And so John comes out here and he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Now, just another quick aside. When John here is talking about the world, he's not saying don't love the ground, don't love the chair, don't love the tree. He's talking about the world, what our hearts do with the world. Where we look for significance and security and control and power, the deep longings of our hearts, do we set them on the world, satan 's kingdom, or do we look to be fulfilled within god 's kingdom from his king? That is what Jesus is te- or what John is telling us. He says, "Do not set your hearts upon finding what they crave." in the things of the physical world. It's not the physical world is bad and we need to be spiritual. The Bible tells us the physical world is good, that it is right, it is good and it is healthy. But it's what our hearts do with it that is the problem. You cannot love, John tells us, both God and the world. It's kind of like this. I find this one funny. Two girls ask you for a date. Same time, same day. You have to make a choice. This is what happens. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't love both the kingdom of God and its king and the kingdom of the world and its king. Your loves will come into conflict at some point and something has to win. So who do you say yes to? Where you see those conflicts and where you see your answer shows where your heart is. And so if you say yes to Frederica and no to Isabella, uh, I chose those because there are no people by those names here. Uh, It shows you that you love Frederica or you think Frederica is better able to satisfy the desires of your heart than Isabella is. But if you chose Isabella, you'd be saying, that's where my heart can find what it is craving. And John says, you cannot love both things. One thing always will win. And then he unpacks it for us. He says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. He unpacks the world. And see, notice here, he does it in terms of loves or desires. So he uses the NIV here, translates it lust. It could be desire. When we think lust of the flesh, you kind of think, oh, sex and pornography. No, what he's saying is the normal human bodily desires. Food, yes, sex is in there. Other things but the normal embodied existence that we have. For John, the flesh isn't as negative as it is for Paul, but just ignore that if that doesn't make any sense. Um, What John here is saying is that the world and its desires consists of these normal human bodily desires, and we look for them to be gratified. And John says, don't go to the world the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. When we see things that captivate us and we go, that's something I've got to have, that's someone who could meet my needs. If I had that, then I'd be okay. We are drawn by our physical needs. We are drawn by the desires of what we see. We are are drawn by the pride of life. An older translation translated this as the boasting of what we have and do, which I think captures the meaning quite well. It's looking at what your achievements are and resting in them and saying, I have meaning, I have significance, I have security, I have comfort and control because I've got these things, because I am this kind of person. It's looking to our reputation, it's looking to our career, it's looking to our resources, it's looking to our family, it's looking to the things of this world. And saying, I have arrived, looking to the world rather than looking to Christ. And the Bible teaches us that sin, our rebellion against God, it's like a magnet on the compass of our hearts and it draws our needle off true north and to the things of this world. But we are made. We are made for something more. The things of this world will never satisfy. That's what happens, I think, when you hit that 40 to 50 midlife crisis kind of thing, where you kind of realise that actually all the things you are holding out to deliver, they're actually never going to deliver. You actually see that they are empty, and they are not capable of giving you what your heart craves. Augustine said it like this speaking of God he said you have made us for yourselves yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. There is a battle John tells us it is a battle for our love. Two options the world or God. And that brings us to our second point, which is not called searching for clues. Okay, John writes to a church in the midst of a battle. There are false teachers coming in who are speaking, John tells us, by a different spirit. They are preaching a different kingdom, the kingdom of the world, and a different king. They claim to be speaking in God's name, but John says they are not. There is a battle there for their hearts And John, he writes to the church. And he starts with reassurance. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You dear children. You cherished children of God. Loved. Cared for. You are his, and he is yours. John reassures them in the battle of their status. And then he says this, and he says, you have overcome them. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the church and the false teachers? Is he talking about the time when they said, no, we're not going to listen to what you're telling us because it is different to the Jesus that we know from scripture? Is it when they resisted the false teaching? Well, possibly, but that is an ongoing battle that they will face day after day after day to turn to Christ and from the world. John here tells them they have, and it is a If you're a grammatical nerd like I am, it's a perfect tense. It is a completed action that has implications into the present. It's done. The victory has been won. So what is this victory? If it's not the ongoing victory as they stand against false teaching, well, there is a a hint in the next section when John says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So who is that? Who's the one who is in them? Now, you might think, well, it's obvious, Kevin. it's the Holy Spirit. He's here talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's talking about the spirit of the Antichrist in a couple of verses earlier. And so the Holy Spirit is greater than the, the spirit of Satan that's out there. Well, it could be that. But I actually think it's Jesus. So to go back to the start, what's Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you're a technically minded person, all the way through here, John uses the neuter tense for the Holy Spirit. But here, he is using a masculine pronoun, the one He's talking about a masculine figure. I think he's talking about Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who is stronger than the strongman. He is the one who plunders the enemy, who has a victory over sin and death and evil. He is the one who has defanged the serpent. And when did he do it? He did it on the cross. Jesus won once and for all, a victory for all of his people. And so as we fight this battle, we fight this battle knowing the victory is secure. Because Jesus, Jesus has won the battle on the cross. Let me unpack this a little bit. Jesus on the cross, he dealt with everything that stands against God, his purposes, and his people. He deals with sin, our rebellion, once for all. He pays its penalty. Jesus died in our place bearing the cost that we owed. He paid our penalty. But there is more. The Bible teaches us that before we came to Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan, to evil. Not that we were uh, all axe murderers and, you know, we're out there doing horrendous things, but our general orientation of life was away from God and towards the kingdom of this world. And what Christ did on the cross was not only did he pay sin's penalty, but he broke its power. He united us to Christ. He brought us into the kingdom of the Son. He brought us under a different Lord and there is a different spirit operating in our lives. And the Bible tells us that brings forth the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, faith, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. That we bring forth the character of the king as we live the life of the kingdom. Sin's power is broken. And as we look at the cross, we see sin unmasked. We prayed it this morning in the prayer of confession before we shared the Lord's Supper, that we might see sin as he sees it. Because what we see on the cross is sin unmasked. Let me just digress. Just imagine, what what's what's a sin that you you don't actually think is too bad, okay? Maybe, maybe let me pick on something that none of you think is really that bad. Grumbling. You know, it's okay to grumble, isn't it? Particularly if you're a guy about my age, okay? We've got lots to grumble about, okay? It's okay. Um, look, really, you know, if our wives were up for the scratch, like if they're up to the mark, you know, we wouldn't be grumbling, but really, they, they fall short, don't they? No. Sorry, apologies, Karen. (laughs) But there's lots in this world. There's lots in this world that we can grumble. The the kids don't behave the way they should, you know, and work's not working out. They don't see how how good I am. We grumble. And we're right to do so, aren't we? Are we? No, not really. And do you know what? Our grumbling, our grumbling ultimately is a grumble against God. It's saying, actually, God, things aren't working out the way that I want them to. You've dropped the ball. You're meant to be working things good for me. And I'm not happy. So I'm grumbling. And you know what? Our grumbling would have been sufficient if that was the only sin it would have been sufficient to send Christ to the cross. So when we look at the cross, as we share the Lord's Supper and we eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of Christ's body broken, his body was broken, his blood was shed, so our grumbling could be forgiven. Pick your sin, maybe it's not grumbling for you. But sin is unmasked. That is not just a nothing. It's not just a forgivable fault. It's a sin that took Christ to the cross. Sin is unmasked. And so we can see it and the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, can just show us how far we fall short. Then reassure us with the comfort of the grace that is ours in Christ. It shows us sin's sinfulness. It also deals with its power to entice. Anyone seen the, the movie The Matrix? You know, the first time, you, if you're not familiar with The Matrix, it's, it's, there's this sort of uh, alternate reality thing that's happening. It's a big computer program, and it's probably impossible to explain it to you. But there's this one scene where uh, everything is sort of in greys, Okay, and then this lady in the red dress walks past and you just see the main character just turn because she's not only an attractive woman, but she's wearing this bright red dress in this world of blues and greys. It just draws Neo, the main character, his attention to her. The cross, the cross shows us something that is truly worth our heart's love shows us the beauty and the majesty of grace, the mercy and justice of the king. The cross breaks sin's power to entice because it shows us something that is so much better than what the world can offer. So, going back to the start, how do we know that the spirit of god is at work let me give you jonathan edwards when the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of satan's kingdom which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's and women's worldly desires this is a sure sign that it is a true that it is true and not a false spirit Jonathan Edwards, I think, is teaching exactly what 1 John 4 is teaching. That if things are making us, if something is making us turn from sin and turn to God, to see God and his kingdom and his king as our highest good and to set our hearts on that, that's of God. And we can know that for sure. But if in our lives we find that the world is more and more attractive there is a challenge for us so let's undergo our spiritual let me give you some questions to think about are we living with our hearts being drawn more and more to God's kingdom and God's king are we living out of the victory that Christ won on the cross for us Are we being transformed by that gospel of grace so that we are growing more and more as God's people? Let me ask you, do you have a growing amazement at the cross? Do we look at Christ on the cross in his word, in the Lord's supper that we just shared, in the baptism that we celebrated last week? in the gospel that we preach? Do we see more and more that makes us go, wow, that Christ won over sin and death and Satan for us? Are we amazed that sin's power is broken, that we are now set free, that we can live In God's kingdom, the way he meant for us to do so. That he set us free to live for him. Do we have a growing amazement in the cross? Do we have a growing appreciation of the beauty of holiness? Is there part of our lives that looks at Christ and says, oh, to be more like him that we see the life of faith spelt out in God's word and we want that and we want it with all our hearts do we look at his call to obedience and say by God's grace what a privilege or do we see his call to obedience as a burden You know, somehow that God is going to rip us off. He's going to take all our fun away because actually that's a sign, brother, sister, that your heart is set upon the things of this world. And so when Christ is saying no to them, you're thinking, I'm ripped off. But what you don't see is he is saying yes to something that is so much better. It's like, you know, Maybe you're a parent of a little child. Some of us have been parents of little children. And they've grabbed the draino or something from underneath the sink and they really want to chug it down. And, uh, and they, they get really angry when you as a parent take the draino off them. Okay? Are you ripping them off? Are you depriving them of something that is really good? No. And so when God's word says no to sin and says yes to righteousness, he's not ripping us off. He's giving us something that is so much better. And do we see that? Do we have a growing appreciation of the beauty of holiness? Do we have a growing disdain for sin? Do we see it for what it is? Do we look at those things like I've explored with you, my grumbling issue? Yes, it's mine. It's real. It's probably not mine only. Do we see it for what it is? Do we see the offence that it is against our holy and loving God? Do we see that it sent Christ to the cross? And so we don't look at it and cherish it like cultivating a nice little weed in your garden. We go in and by God's grace, we rip it out at the roots. We grieve its presence. We turn from it and we rejoice that by God's grace we can. Do we have a growing disdain for sin? And lastly, do we have a growing wonder that we are God's children. As John addresses the church back in the first century, so he addresses us. Dear children, that we have a heavenly father that is ours by Christ's sacrifice through his grace. Does it astound us that we are God's children? Jim Packer, some of you will know that name. He was a guy uh, died recently. He said, if you want to know what someone thinks of being a Christian, whether they understand it at all, see how much they make of being God's child. Are we growing in wonder that we can pray our Father, that we with Christ Christ, are heirs, heirs of the kingdom. Let me give you some final prescriptions and then I'll sit down. Let me give you three R's. Rest, rejoice, and repent. How do we respond to this? Rest. Know that it is by grace that you have been saved. This is a victory won. You have overcome. Why? Because Christ overcame on the cross. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. He is the stronger man, stronger than the strong man. He has bound him, disarmed him, and robbed him. Robbed him of us. Christ has won a great victory and we must rest in that. We rejoice in it. We respond in our hearts by praise and thanksgiving. Let our hearts overflow with worship. And then as we see his grace before us, it is then we can turn to our sin. And we can repent, die to self, live to God and grow each day in that orientation that sets our hearts, not on the things of this world, but on God, his king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for the victory that he himself won on the cross. Thank you that it is once for all. It is complete. It is finished. And by faith, it is ours. Father, let our hearts rest in that. Let us rejoice in your grace. And Father, let us each day turn from the temptations to set our hearts on the things of this world and by your spirit we pray that you would be directing us to set our hearts on you your son and your kingdom and in Christ's name we pray Amen